Ever since its introduction in 2012, the Blake hash function has been reputed for achieving performance matching and even exceeding MD5 while still maintaining a high security margin. While the original Blake did make it as a finalist to the NIST SHA-3 competition, Ketchak was ultimately selected. But this hasn't discouraged the Blake team, who in January of this year published Blake 3, promising to be even faster than Blake 2 thanks to a highly parallelizable design and fewer rounds. But wait, what exactly is a parallelizable hash function? Isn't a lower number of rounds risky? And heck, how do you even design a hash function? Joining me today are two of the four Blake 3 authors, Jack O'Connor and Jean-Philippe Omasson, to discuss these questions and more. This episode of Cryptography FM is sponsored by NSU Crypto, the International Olympiad in Cryptography. NSU Crypto is the unique cryptographic Olympiad containing scientific mathematical problems for professionals, school and university students from any country. Its aim is to involve young researchers in solving curious and tough scientific problems in modern cryptography. There were more than 1,900 participants from 52 countries in the first six Olympiads. The first round of the 2020 NSU Crypto Olympiad will be held this week on October 18th, so head over today to the NSU Crypto website at nsucrypto.nsu.ru to sign up and try your hand against interesting and fun cryptography puzzles. Jack O'Connor is a software engineer focused on cryptography and the lead author of Blake 3. Prior to that, he worked at Keybase on several cryptography projects, including the SALT pack messaging format and exploding and ephemeral chat messages. Currently, he works on encryption at Zoom and maintains a few rust crates in his spare time. Hey, Jack. Hi, how's it going? All right. And we're also joined by Jean-Philippe Omasson a cryptographer known for designing the Blake and Siphash hash functions and for his book, Serious Cryptography. After a PhD in academic research, he held different roles related to applied cryptography in the private sector and is now chief security officer of Taurus Group, a startup that he co-founded in Switzerland. Hey, Jean-Philippe. Hello, Nadim. Thank you for inviting us. And Siphash is not a hash, it's a Mac. Uh, your bio says sip hash hash functions, so yeah. uh, I I don't know who's responsible for this, but it's not me. Uh, we should move on to our first question, and this is a question that I have always wondered about before I um, got into understanding how Blake works by looking at the uh, Blake hash function book that was published by Springer. But I also think that a lot of people, maybe students, wonder about this. Like we know why hash functions are useful. We don't need to get into that. Uh, we know how the process works for getting them standardized. But something that seems to still be the realm of black magic and that is not described in many um, either graduate or undergraduate texts is how on earth do you sit down and design a hash function? And I think that the process for this can actually be a bit more opaque 
than if you look at, for example, the design process for asymmetric primitives, because you know in that case that you are basing yourself on a hard problem. You know, I'm going to go take the discrete log and make a primitive out of it. I'm going to take the uh, RSA problem and make a primitive out of it. Um, but in the case of uh, symmetric primitives and hash functions, we're not basing ourselves on some algebraic problem that's predefined mm -hmm. for us and that we know to be hard. So how do you how do you just sit down and design a hash function? What are the steps for such an undertaking? How do you know that the design is secure? All right. So uh, that's a very good question. I could talk about it for one hour. But maybe to put it very simply, hash function, first of all, is probably the simplest cryptographic primitive uh, you can imagine. It's simpler than the block cipher, simpler than uh, Diffie-Hellman, for example. And when I started my PhD, so Blake, the first Blake before Blake 3 and before Blake 2, it was designed to be candidate to the Shastri competition. And I'm not very good at math, uh, but to design hash functions, you don't need a lot of math. You, don't, you just need quite a good understanding of how symmetric crypto cryptography works and how you can design a secure symmetric cryptographic component. Um, so essentially, I designed Blake when I think in the middle of my PhD thesis around 2007. Um, and I was motivated to win the Shastri competition and I failed at winning the Shastri competition, but hopefully I succeeded in designing something uh, not too bad as a hash function. Um, and maybe when I say I designed, so I was the lead designer, but that was a team effort. I was working with my then supervisor, Willem Meyer, with Luca Hensen, who worked on the hardware design and who gave advice on how to make the hash function hardware friendly. And then Rafael Pan, who also helped me a lot designing something that was resistant to differential attacks. That's that's a good introduction to how you got to work on Blake in the first place. Okay. But really, I, I, I want to get into more detail about this. Uh, when you say that it's similar to the uh, design of symmetric primitives in general, when you mentioned that you got uh, other researchers in that had specialty in uh, examining certain types of analyses of symmetric primitives and or looking at certain types of attacks of symmetric primitives, how do you um, take that information and go from there and use that in order to actually design um, a function? So I know, for example, just to give you an idea, um, I know that there are some hash functions that are based on existing um, operations for um, symmetric primitives. Like, for example, I think that Blake is based on the ChaCha20 uh, stream cipher. Uh, but at the same time, I know also that you have worked with um, one of your um, collaborators on uh, creating another cipher called Norks which uh, uh, avoids certain uh, bitwise operations. And so... Um, I guess what I would ask is, how do you decide on a candidate for a symmetric cipher? Why do you start with a symmetric cipher? And how do you decide which operations to use there and, ten, and then take that understanding yeah. and convert it into a hash function? So that's very easy. You know that DJB design cha-cha, sha, so that was the obvious solution for us. Uh, well, uh, jokes aside, uh, you mentioned um, you know, public crypto and mostly about all public crypto is based on this notion of reduction. You rely on a problem known to be hard, and you design a public scheme where you demonstrate that breaking the scheme is at least as hard as breaking the underlying problem. And it's all about trust, it's all about assurance. So you know you need to to tell the people who might want to use your scheme that have a good reason to believe that it's secure. And in symmetric cryptography, we usually don't have the luxury of having this kind of reduction to a problem such as factoring or discrete log. 
the best we can do is to rely on some technique or some component that have been studied and that is known to be reliable enough. So like I was saying, I started you know, my PhD and I didn't have much experience. Uh, I was a bit clueless about you know, what is secure, what is not secure. Um, and I also knew that when you submit something to the Shastri competition, you ha only have like a few months or a few years to demonstrate that your function is secure. So, you know, in a, in a hash function, you have compression function, and inside the compression function, oftentimes you have a permutation. And we just had this uh, salsa and cha-cha stream cipher that I've been working on during the East stream competition, which was this competition for stream ciphers. And I, I knew quite well the salsa and cha-cha because I did some attacks, and I had quite a good confidence that the algorithm was uh, safe against differential attacks. And I also really liked the way Dan Burstein approached the design of such primitives. I love the way it was designed to be, you know, efficiently implemented on um, SMD processors. And I just realized that, you know, initially before using ChaCha, we had some basic design uh, combining addition, exo, and rotation. And we ended up saying, well, but look, what we're just doing is reinventing SASA, it's reinventing ChaCha. So let's just directly use ChaCha. And that's what we ended up doing with one small twist that uh, we talk about later. So how do you how do you take a encryption function and um, convert it into a hash function? What are so it's actually the other way around. Uh, if you look at how Sasa and Chacha are designed, um, they're not stream ciphers like LFSRs where you have a state in your data state. They're essentially the repeated application of a permutation, uh, essentially um, sort of random function, so to speak. So it was fairly easy to, uh, for us to directly take this permutation and adapt it a little bit to make a compression out of it. So a compression function is a function whereby you take a chaining value, a message block, and you hash them, sort of, and you end up with a new chaining value. And there are Voynon constructions, for example, Davis Meyer construction, where you combine uh, a permutation and these two inputs to get a new output. So that's essentially what we did with some minor changes for, for Blake, number one. So I guess my second question would be, well, could you talk more about what separates the Blake family in general? the Blake family of hash functions from other hash functions, such as Ketchak, which was chosen uh, for the SHA-3 competition. And then as a follow-up question to this, I want to know how Blake 3 is separate and different from uh, other entries in, in the Blake family. Yeah, let me um, let me grab the second half of your question first for just a bit, because it's it might be worth clarifying that um, the details of the compression function that JP was just talking about those are true, essentially, of Blake, Blake 2, and Blake 3. Um, so the, the things that separate Blake 2 and, and Blake 3 from the original Blake design are, are at mostly at a higher level. Actually, Blake 2 and Blake uh, have some more significant differences in the compression function. Blake 3 essentially uses exactly the same compression function as Blake 2s. Um, so yes, to the first part of your question. So the Blake family is relatively large. Uh, you know, this, Blake, there's Blake 2, and Blake 2 comes in several flavors, Blake 2B, Blake 2S, Blake 2BP, Blake 2SP, arguably Blake 2X, uh, and now Blake 3. Um, the the Ketchak family is also large. So the SHA-3 standard is in the Ketchak family. Um, there's a number of related functions, Shake. Um, recently, they have published a very high-performance uh, variant called Kangaroo 12. Um, it's inter interesting name. Uh, so if you want to compare those families to, uh, to each other, it's 
they're, they're sufficiently large and the, and the different designs in each family do sufficiently different things that it's a little hard to, to give one broad summary of how they're different, other than the obvious difference that the Blake family derives from Blake, which derives from Cha-Cha-20, and the Ketchup family derives from the Ketchup permutation, which became Cha-3. So that's the sort of historical difference. Um, but other than that, they just have a lot of a lot of designs that do a lot of different things. Maybe okay. the, the biggest difference, I would say, is like the design philosophy of the two. So the, the Ketchup family and all the derived modern functions and PRF and authenticated ciphers they build on this minimalistic design whereby you rely on only one single permutation and you build everything around this permutation. Whereas Blake is more similar to the compression function-based design, where you have a compression function that itself might be based on a permutation or a block cipher, but it's a different design paradigm, if I dare use this term. Uh, they, are, they are different. Uh, they have different types of security proofs. And in terms of uh, memory usage, they have slight differences, but ultimately they can both achieve the highest level of security and be very fast. Yes, I think maybe one of, one of the details that might be worth clarifying for people who haven't actually written code that calls a compression function is, um, you know, the, the Blake compression function is going to take two very important inputs and maybe some others, but two very important ones. And one is the state that you're compressing so far. And the other is the message words, the input that you're compressing. Whereas the Ketchup permutation, it's called, a, it's called a permutation, right? It's not called a compression function. All it takes is the state and it mixes it. So it's then the responsibility of the higher level mode to add message words into that state in some way. That's where you, we get things like the sponge construction. So that's a difference that you'll see if you look at how the modes are designed. Um, I wouldn't say that has an enormous impact on how the hash functions that are derived from these different families get used in practice, but that is a difference on the inside. Okay, let's scale back a little bit. Um, let's talk about the history of Blake, Blake 2, and especially Blake 3. So the people behind Blake are obviously Jack, Jean-Philippe. Uh, could you also talk more about the other uh, contributors who weren't able to join us today and uh, how this all came together into a group effort? And then based on that, perhaps we can describe how Blake 2 evolved into Blake 3 and what are the special features in Blake 3 that uh, make it uh, different and an improvement on Blake 2? So, so maybe, yes, a uh, good point to stress that the set of authors of Blake vs. Blake 2 vs. Blake 3 are quite different. Uh, so Blake 2, just to quickly summarize, it was designed after the announced that Ketchak won the Chess 3 uh, competition because I had the feeling that we've had learned a lot during this competition, but Nisa chosen Ketchak as submitted in 2008 uh, whereas in 2012, when they announced the election, we knew much better how to design a secure hash. So that's why I wanted to design Blake 2, and also I wanted Blake 2 to be better uh, than Ketchak, according to some uh, specific, specific metrics like software performance. So Blake 2 was designed so by myself, uh, Simon Neves, who, um, who is a major contributor to the Blake 2 and Blake 3 family in terms of efficient implementation. Uh, Zuko joined because uh, one of the reasons that well, he knows very well hash functions, he was designing the Tahoe Lab system where he needed a fast and secure hash function. So he helped a lot also thinking about the, the three modes. And Cousin uh, Chaos uh, was also helping us regarding the design because he knew a lot about um, how to use hash functions in practice. Uh, so Black 3, the genesis of Black 3, maybe I can let Jack summarize uh, how it all started and who contributed. Sure. So Blake 3 started out as a 
project with a totally different name, which I called Bao. It had different names at different times in history. Um, its current name is Bao. Um, and it was actually, it wasn't even originally a hash function. It was originally a higher level construction. So the problem I had run into is that at Keybase, for example, we were encrypting files that needed to be decrypted and, and verified on the other side in an end-to-end -end way. So you don't trust the server, the server might change the file, something like that. And you want to verify the hash of that. Um, and if you put yourself in the position of maybe a cell phone verifying the hash of a video, of course, you don't want to download the whole video before you can verify any of it and, and play any of it. You want to be able to stream it. You want to be able to verify each piece as it comes in in some way. And so to solve that problem, I got started thinking about Merkle trees, which is, I mean, it's sort of, you could call that the standard solution to this problem, uh, BitTorrent has incorporated Merkle trees for many years. Um, some other standards like the uh, Tiger hash function, I believe, do similar things. Um, so using a Merkle tree to solve the streaming verification problem is not new, certainly not new. Um, so I was thinking about that, and the BOW project got started in that direction. Um, and originally, it was using Blake2B. And then as, as the project got, got farther along, one of the things I realized is that the way that a Merkle tree enables streaming is sort of by making each piece of the tree more independent of the other pieces, also happens to enable very high performance hashing. Uh, because that independence, uh, the fact that you can say hash the left half and the right half at the same time, means that you can do it on two different threads. Or when, when SIMD gets involved, you can do it in parallel using SIMD vectors. And so um, the, the, at that point, I started optimizing the speed of this thing, um, which meant making it like a parallel Blake2B implementations and things like that, which is pretty fun. Um, and then as that got ready for review, um, I, I brought Zuko in, actually, over Twitter. Uh, and he reviewed it. He thought it was pretty cool. Uh, and he looped in uh, Samuel and JP. Um, and we decided that it had, you know, had enough potential that we could make it into something like Blake 3. Uh, just in case, um, just in order to make the episode more accessible, uh, could one of you maybe talk more about how, what Merkle trees are and how they work and how their uh, structure is valuable. Well, I think you've already described quite a bit how their structure is valuable when it comes to Blake 3, but maybe give a more high-level overview of what Merkle trees are. Sure. Um, I'll take this one if that's okay. So um, in, in one sense, a Merkle tree is just a, a very, very simple idea. The idea is that you're going to hash some things, and then you're going to hash those hashes together so that the sort of the resulting graph of all the things that you've hashed together looks like a tree. Um, that's a very simple idea. Um, the, you know, why, why do you want to do this sort of thing? You know, we mentioned you can hash those different things, the, the leaves of the tree in parallel. So you can do that for performance reasons, or it may just be that the thing you have isn't really structured like a single contiguous string. So, you know, if the thing you have is a list of files and you need to hash them all together, it's pretty natural to hash each one like the normal way and then somehow join all those hashes. And a tree shape is a pretty good way to do that. So that's, that's a Merkle tree. So you're saying that um, blockchains are a Merkle tree kind of sort of, right? It's Absolutely. A, Mer a Merkle chain, a single threaded Merkle tree. Does that mean that Blake 3 is blockchain-based technology? <laughs> yeah, I, everything is blockchain-based technology, Nadeem. Yeah. I, I don't know why you would even I am very confused as to why <laughs> this marketing angle was not exploited. <laughs> I feel like you could have um, gotten a lot of headway by saying we've created the first blockchain-based hash function. And then if you base a blockchain on Blake 3, you have a blockchain based on a blockchain-based hash function in the blockchain. Well, actually, I learned this week about a new blockchain technology 
that is using Blake's tree as part of, of its uh, proof of fork. And uh, I'm going to address something you mentioned, which is that um, Bitcoin does actually have Merkle trees on the inside. If you read the Bitcoin white paper or blog posts about Bitcoin, you know yeah. that that's one of the buzzwords that comes up. And it's actually not the chain part itself. I, I think, Nadine, you probably know this, but it's worth explaining. The, the Merkle trees show the chain is a chain, of course, which is you could call a tree, but that's a bit bit cheating, isn't it? Uh, but but there is actually a Merkle tree on the inside of each block. And and the reason for that is not so different from the reason that I originally wanted one for Bao is that as transactions come in, they need to be slotted in and then the block, the hash of the block needs to be updated. And the tree structure, arranging them all as a tree, lets you update that pretty efficiently because instead of rehashing the whole thing, which might be fairly large, I suppose exactly how large it is is the subject of some debate, uh, but it might be fairly large either way. Um, you can rehash just a path through the tree and it's more efficient. So Merkle trees get used there and always, always have been. It's been a core part of Bitcoin. Maybe one point that uh, we could mention, I think Jack made it pretty clear that the main difference between Blake 3 and Blake 2 is that Blake 3 is a tree, whereas Blake 2 is not a tree. But actually when we design Blake 2, if you design a, if you look at the original specification document, we actually specify two tree-based modes, so Blake 2 SP and Blake 2 BP. Uh, where the P stands for parallel, but actually nobody used them because people wanted to have like a clear view of a single Blake 2. So that is Blake 2. We already struggled, you know, explaining to people that we have Blake 2 S and Blake 2 B. There are different versions and they, they would ask us, okay, but which one is the true Blake 2? So that's the problem we wanted to avoid with Blake 3, have one single version instead of having 10 different versions with different names that make it so confusing for the users. Yeah, I feel like this is a very common problem, actually, in all kinds of primitives, AS192, AS256, and even in the new post-quantum primitives. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was implementing the Kyber post-quantum primitive, and I just couldn't understand why they had different security levels. Uh, but aside from different security, like, we already have this problem for different security levels, but then when you add on top of it uh, different feature sets uh, and different underlying functionality, depending on which features you want to offer, that definitely makes things um, even more complicated when it comes to someone trying to build a cryptographic portfolio. Um, so, so maybe that's a good point just uh, to react to what you were saying. You mentioned the word post-quantum. Uh, so in case people were wondering about this, so of course, Blake's tree is post-quantum because we don't rely on factoring or discrete log. And we also don't rely on symmetric problems that are you know, subject to um, algorithms. Are there a uh, lot of hash functions that rely on the discrete yes, log? I, I feel obligated to be fair to every other hash function in the world well, uh, and represent the fact that they could all be described as post-quantum. There is VSH, so maybe a few of you will remember VSH. <laughs> okay, almost, almost every hash function. Hash functions are a pretty fundamental cryptographic primitive, but are there some things that you can do with Blake 3 that you cannot do with Blake 2 and SHA and SHA 3 and MD5? Uh, yes, there are, and and that's because of the tree structure. So one of one of our bullet points at the very top of the GitHub repo or near the top of the paper um, is this is this concept of uh, streaming verification, which I mentioned is basically the reason I got started on the Bow project, which became Blake Three, so that you can verify a file that you've hashed in the past. You can verify it against its hash as you as you stream it piece by piece without waiting for the whole thing. So that's that is not practical to do unless you have a tree of some kind. Um, there are some interesting differences between, for example, the tree structure used in Blake 3 and the tree structure used in Kangaroo 12. Um, it, both are trees, but the structure is different. Um, the Blake 3 tree structure is more suited 
for this kind of thing. We could talk about those details if you like. Another maybe not extremely important feature of Blake's free compared to Blake2 is that you get key hashing essentially for free. So key hashing is when, for example, you want to build a PRF or a Mac. So instead of having one single message as the input, you also have a secret key. So what we do, we don't hash the key followed by the message. Instead, the key is set as part of the parameters of the hash. So to oversimplify, you can imagine a kind of initial value of ID, although it's quite different. But you don't hash more data when you have a key compared to the case when you don't have a key. So it's not slower to hash uh, with a key than without. So you get this key hashing is zero overhead. Okay, so we know what the special features are. We know what the underlying sort of magical ingredient is when it comes to Merkle trees. Um, but we, what we don't know, what we haven't talked about yet, is how do you combine these things to make it to make sure that Blake three can be so performant, uh, especially with large files? How is it so fast? Yes. Yeah, so on on modern machines, uh, when you want things to be fast, they have to be parallel. Right. That's because of multi core, multi threading. That's because of SIMD. Um, so. In a sense, you could say, it's simplifying a bit, but not too much, as long as you make a tree that isn't accidentally a loop, <laughs> as long as your tree is really a tree, you will be able to run that hash very, very quickly. Um, it's that It turns out that's not the hard part. I would suggest, and maybe this is a follow-up question, the harder part is making sure your tree doesn't violate the security properties of the hash function that you thought you had. So is there a possibility that embedding a Merkle tree into the hash function can expose... Um new types of attacks, new types of side channels. And I think like intuitively, uh, my intuition is that this seems very unlikely. But then you look at the kinds of attacks like the new raccoon attack on TLS and uh, that was published recently. And you see that uh, a lot of times these attacks come from really unexpected places. And so I was wondering if there is any sort of security analysis uh, that sort of either discusses or totally rules out the introduction of Merkle trees exposing any new side channel attacks on the Blake three hashing process. So when you talk of hash trees, uh, the thing that comes to, to my mind is uh, hash based signatures. So hash based signatures such as things are essentially gigantic tree, gigantic trees of trees of trees of trees of hashes. So you essentially run hashes and in a crazy tree structure. So one class of attacks uh, is about Injecting faults, for example, if you run this on an embedded platform, you can inject faults that will make the logic behave a bit differently, and you will not compute the correct tree structure, and you can sometimes leverage this to force signatures. Um, so that's quite a different setting from Blake's tree. So Blake's tree is not directly usable for hash-based signing, although you can you can imagine using it. But you can maybe think about the same kind of attack when you use Blake's tree in a tree-based setting. And if there might be potential, you know, glitching attacks or other types of faults, whereby the hash is not computed in the right way, then you might end up with the incorrect result, and this might be exploitable depending on your use case. But this kind of applies to any any hash function, regardless of whether you use a tree or not. It's just that when you have a tree structure, you can do things a bit smarter, especially in the context of hash-based signatures. Is there any sort of um potential path to a formalized security analysis that we can adopt in order to get better understanding, a better formal understanding of whether or not uh, adding a tree-based structure to a hashing scheme uh, introduces um, any security issues? So there's actually, sometimes people ask us, uh, oh, is Blake's tree secure? And we respond, yeah, of course. And they ask why? And we say, because the 
permutation is secure and because the mod is secure. So regarding the mod, there was a paper, I think, by the, the Ketchak team that was defining a list of criteria to make a tree, a tree mod uh, secure in the absolute sense, in the sense that you get a hash that is indifferentiable from a random oracle. So we don't have a proof in the sense uh, of a proof designed only for Blake 3, uh, let alone a formal refiction proof. But what we have is pretty good guarantee that the hash mode, the tree mode based in uh, using Blake 3 fulfills all these security criteria. And so that means that we have a secure tree mode. Right. So I, I think it's very interesting to look at the ways that a bad tree mode can screw up a good hash function. So typically, for example, you might take a regular hash function, could be SHA-256, make that the hash of your leaves, and then keep using SHA-256 on the way up to make a tree. Um, and, and there are basically two big ways you can screw that up. One is you can fail to distinguish between uh, the, the, hash, like the hashes inside the tree, like the hashes of hashes. Uh, what we call the like interior nodes or parent nodes um, versus the hashes of data, so the, the leaves themselves. So, for example, you know, say I have uh, a file with two leaves. Maybe the leaves are a kilobyte each. Maybe I've got a two kilobyte file, so I've got two leaves, one parent, right? So that parent has some. The inputs of that parent are the hashes of the two leaves. So maybe about sixty-four bytes, depending on how we're doing it. I could then construct a new input where I've chosen. The, the, the 64 bytes of the file, this new input, to be exactly the same as whatever those 64 bytes were inside the tree in the previous file. So if we're not careful, if we just naively hash all of that together to form the root, now, the, now these two files are colliding. We've, we've, we've created a hash collision, which of course it's a security requirement that there can be no hash collisions in a, in a cryptographic hash function. We've created one because our tree mode is not secure. And in this particular case, it hasn't distinguished between things that are leaves, like input data, and things that are not leaves, like interior that's why this is, this is really valuable. Mm. This is exactly mm. the sort of thing that I was trying to uh, to ask about. Uh, so, how can you, you know, is there a way for you to really be sure that uh, Merkle tree structures, you know, they do seem to eliminate this particular um, style of of problem that you just discussed? But uh, I'm just wondering what the formal analysis for any other similar problems would look like when looking at combining tree structures with hash functions. Admittedly, which is a very I suppose, new combination, because usually you build trees out of hash functions. You don't put the hash function in, you, put, you don't put the tree inside the hash function. It's a, it's a subtle, it's a subtle distinction. It depends on what you consider to be the hash function. Um, I, I, I correct you real quick that just using a Merkle tree doesn't solve the problem that I just mentioned that the problem that I just mentioned is the, is the first problem you run into when you try to use a Merkle tree, you actually have to take an extra step to domain separate the hash of the leaf from that, the hash of the parent, for example. That's the yeah. first of, of two big categories. Which is, which is something that you uh, do, I suppose. Yes, in, the standard like, does that. That's right. So to the, to the second part of your question, the, you, if you squint at it, if you look at the Blake 3 spec and squint at it, what you will see is that the way we hash leaves, which we usually call chunks, um, is very similar to Blake 2 and, and in that way similar to most other serial normal hash functions, which is that we have a compression function and we iterate it in a linearly, you know, the output of one is the input of the next. And so it's not the way you hash an individual chunk is not a tree. It looks a lot like a regular hash. Now that hash doesn't have a name. It's it's just it's sort of buried in the Blake three spec. It's nameless. It's it's just part. It's it's just a subset of the details of the spec. But you could call that an independent hash function if you wanted to, and then reason about it, just like you would have reasoned about a tree made out of SHA-256 or something like that. So if Blake three was a uh, final boss in a Japanese RPG, when you defeat its first form you get that core hash function as the final form. 
Is that is that an well, academic correct way to sort of summarize what you just said? Of course, Blake three could never be defeated. That's uh, how, how it you know such a thing is inconceivable. But uh, yeah, that's I, how, that, that's I, how yes. I felt. That's how I felt when I was fighting Lavos in Chrono Trigger for the first time. But you know, I, I prefer to think of it as as turtles all the way down. It's like we have to assume the compression function works, and then we have to assume that the chain. So, another another works angle for you know. like a sort of critical Merkle tree question: Doesn't it make implementing Blake three harder? When you have all this Merkle tree stuff, it is it is definitely extra detail. So I would be lying if I said no. <laughs> it is it is an extra detail that you have to think about. That if you're implementing, for example, SHA-256, my go-to sort of standard hash function, you don't have to think about. So it, it's definitely extra details. What we did in the spec in the Blake three paper is devoted an entire section to this. So there's like a it's a it's a about a page and a half all put together, um, explaining a cute nice little algorithm for just making this problem go away. So uh, as you can imagine, the, the hardest version of this problem, I mean, you know, if I tell you you've got a gigabyte file, for example, that's a little bit easier because you, can, you, can, you know what the tree structure is going to be based on the length of that file. If I'm just streaming input at you, you don't know when I'm going to stop. So that's the, which is of course how, that's, that's a normal hashing API, right? You're just incrementally accepting input. No one tells you in advance what the length is. The length may not be known in advance at all, of course. Um, so in that case, you have to build the tree incrementally. Now, this is the sort of thing that is just so hard to do on a podcast where we don't have like a, a whiteboard and I can't draw pictures. But you can imagine that you start with your first leaf and then when you just have your second leaf, a parent node is drawn above the two of them. And then when you get four leaves, two more parent nodes are drawn to make a bigger triangle. And so you can sort of imagine how these binary trees can grow incrementally. Uh, and if your listeners are programmers who've done programming interviews, they may have done some of these problems, you know, on the spot in an interview. These sort of things are good interview problems, but or bad interview problems, depending on your interview theory. But um, it's it's tricky. So managing that incremental state and figuring out exactly when you want to add parent nodes is tricky. So what what we did is we we devoted this page and a half to explaining this little algorithm that says. I will tell you exactly when you should hash the hashes together. So you you keep every chunk you hash, you keep in a stack, a list um, of we call that's chaining values of chunk hashes, and you have this little loop that tells you exactly when you should pop things off that stack and hash them together and put them back on. And it's it's this cute little property where you look at the number of one bits or zero bits, you can do it either way, at the end of the number of chunks you've hashed so far. It turns out that that tells you how many merges you should do. This is related to the fact that a binary tree and numbers represented as powers of two are like they have a lot of structure in common. And so you can do these cute bit tricks. And when you do this, we have a code sample and it's in, in the paper. We have the reference implementation for you. When you do this, you have four lines of code that totally abstract away the tree structure. So that was something we spent a lot of time on to try to make easier for people. Of course, you can also just copy our code and not worry about what it does. But if you actually want to understand it, it's four lines of code. Solve the problem. Okay. Well, um, let's move on. Have you had any success in getting Plague 3 picked up by the industry? So shortly after shortly after we announced Blake 3, so by the way, Blake 3 was announced at the Radio World Crypto Conference in January 2020. I think literally a few hours after the announcement, I received an email or a Twitter DM, whatever, from people at a big social network company that told us that they were they would prototype Black Three to see uh, if it could save them uh, millions of dollars in uh, CPU CPU cost. So I don't know what happened after that. 
Uh, I also heard of some other smaller companies just interested by the speed up of DEX3 compared to other hash functions. Um, I'm not sure I can give names, uh, but I've heard quite a few companies interested in, in DEX3. So, uh, Jean-Philippe, I know that you um, have had some pretty um, um, controversial proposals lately regarding the number of rounds in, uh, in, in, in cryptographic primitives. And I'm wondering if your malignant influence has had uh, any uh, impact on the uh, Blake 3 specification. Uh, I've, I've been hearing a lot of people um, uh, expressing concerns regarding whether or not we can trust the number of rounds in Blake 3. So could you maybe quell those concerns? Yeah, I've really weakened the security of Blake 3 by reducing the number of rounds because one of my research goals had been to you know put backdoors in symmetric cryptographic algorithms and I finally had an opportunity to do it with Blake Street, so I'm really happy about this. Mm -hmm. um, but more seriously, if you look at the best attacks in Blake, Blake 2, Blake Street, there was um, a paper in 2011 that found an attack on three rounds, well, technically 2.75 rounds of Blake. And that's the best attack we have on the Blake, Blake 2 hash function, like fewer than three rounds. There's been some, some attacks on more rounds, but not of the hash function of the permutation instead. So they're not even really attacks, they're just you know, distinguishers with crazy complexities like 2 to the power of 500, which makes little sense in, in practice. So we decided, instead of using 10 rounds in the Blake 2S permutation, to use 7 rounds only. And of course, some people freaked out, they're like, oh, 7 is, is a smaller number than 10, so it must be less secure because 7 is smaller than 10. And then you got to explain them that, no, it's not less secure, it's just faster, because as long as you're secure enough, you don't get better security by doing more rounds. Otherwise, you would put you know, 2,000 rounds just because you can. It makes you feel better. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, we make it faster, we don't make it less secure. And there's pretty strong evidence to... to well, I should mention that, of course, JP has a paper about this that's called Too Much Crypto. Uh, the paper we actually announced at the same conference where we announced Blake 3 um, yeah. and described a round reduction that they were proposing in Blake 2 that we basically ended up lifting right out of there and implementing ourselves in Blake 3. And speaking of backdoors, some people also asked me if you really pay attention to the details and you look at Chacha and you look at Blake 3 and you look at the two permutations, so you will find out that the operations are almost the same. You do rotations, you do XOR, you do addition, and you do rotation by certain values, so so far so good. However, there's different the direction of the rotation. In one case, it's uh, leftwise; in the other case, it's rightwise or big Indian, little Indian. Mm -hmm. And you know, do you know the reason for this? I think nobody knows. Uh, it's, I mean, it's that's 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 actually related to the first question I asked during this interview. Um, sometimes you do have a reason for, for example, uh, addition rotate XOR is a technique that seems to be kind of well studied. People seem to have assumptions on, on it when it comes to security properties. And those assumptions do seem to be well-founded. But yeah. in, in other cases, uh, I can't really come up with an example off the top of my head other than the one that you just mentioned. But there are many things that personally I can't really seem to easily find a justification for. Uh, other methodologies and design decisions that are used in the design of, of symmetric primitives. But uh, we're actually kind of running out of time here. I, I try to keep these episodes to under 40 minutes. I just wanted to conclude by asking you, so I try to do this every episode, but sometimes we don't have time. 
uh, to, I try to ask the guests to suggest interesting papers that they've read recently. And so I see, so we'll start with Jack. So I see that Jack suggested a paper uh, called Online Authenticated Encryption and its Non-Reuse Misuse Resistance. And I'll have those papers linked below. But Jack, could you tell us maybe very quickly about this paper and why you found it interesting? I, I should I should be clear that this this is a one example paper in, in a in a field of like you know modern takes on symmetric encryption, um, and I, I this is something I, I work with at work. You know we encrypt things um, and we have to deal with API details like for example nonce selection, random nonce length, nonce reuse and misuse, um, and and I observe that a lot of practical what are often described as high level APIs out there in the real world for encrypting things like Libsodium um, are quite difficult to use in practice around these details. There are also a lot of modern techniques like the sieve construction, uh, where you, if your random number generator is bad, you try to reduce the consequences of that, things like this. There's sort of, a lot has been done in the in the past, well, continuously, but let's say the past like 15 years um, that hasn't yet made its way into popular APIs. Um, another big one is is just chunking. You know, obviously streaming things is my is my particular interest. But like, yeah, the idea that if you have a gigabyte plain text, you don't want to take a gigabyte of RAM to encrypt it, right? You want to be able to encrypt it in a stream in some way, and that brings up security issues related to if the stream is truncated, things like that. So, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what should be happening next. You know, in that area, like what, like the next standards around making encryption safer and easier to use, like what will they look like? All right. And uh, for Jean-Philippe Masson, the paper was uh, Posh, Proof of Staked Hardware Consensus. Yeah, you know, I, I find that the most exciting crypto research these days is not in how you design yet another new block cipher or how you design yet another new secure channel uh, protocol and alternative to SSH or TLS, but by far the most exciting and interesting research is in the blockchain space, uh, whether you like blockchain or not. And there's really a lot of new fascinating concepts being designed. And this paper is quite a short paper. It's um, about an alternative to proof of fork, where you use a trick, so you use VDF, a verifiable DL function, to implement something called proofs of sequential work. And the goal of this is to disincentivize, disincentivize mining pools by using this really cool new, uh, well, new, uh, relatively new uh, type of primitive called, called VDF. And the paper is really clear, and they do something that I think is, is useful because sometimes you don't want mining pools. So there you have other tricks to avoid mining pools, like non outsourceable proof of work. Uh, but that's a really cool paper, and it's uh, really quickly read. So I recommend it if you're interested. So, uh, okay. So that's all the time we have for this, unfortunately. I want to say uh, thank you so much to um, uh, Jean Philippe and to Jack for participating in this interview. Uh, any last um, words before we close off? Uh, well, you're welcome to Demon. Thank you for having us on. Um, I'm surprised we managed to get to the entire interview without talking about any of our enormous benchmark figures, you know, <laughs> but there are very pretty graphs in the paper and on the GitHub repo. And, yeah, faster than MD5. I mean, that's all you that's all you got to say, right? Lake 2 was faster than MD5. Lake 3, depending on your hardware, is six times faster than Lake 2. And maybe so if you're uh, interested in, in Blake's tree, so we have a research paper on it, but which is quite approachable. And of course, we have open source software published on the GitHub website. So you can check it out. You just Google Blake's tree GitHub. And we have code in Rust. Uh, we have code in C. I mean, the reference code is in Rust. 
Uh, it's really cool. So check it out and uh, let us know if you have questions or file GitHub issues. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of Cryptography FM. But join us again next week for undoubtedly another interesting session discussing cool new work or interesting new results with hopefully insightful and profound questions. And don't forget, it's only a matter of sending us an email. You could also come have a conversation with us. I want you on the show if you have anything interesting to talk about in the realm of applied cryptography. So whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week on Cryptography FM.